Good afternoon, everyone. I'm delighted and honored to welcome you to our second panel today in our conference. Um, it is entitled Prayers, Invocations, and the Talismanic Tradition. Uh, my name is Kimberly Patton, and I am professor in the Comparative and Historical Study of Religion here at the Divinity School, and I want to uh, thank my colleague and friend, Professor Khan, for inviting me to participate. So we will have uh, four presentations with five panelists. It's a mathematical puzzle uh, today. Um, each of the presentations will, inshallah, be about 20 minutes. Um, we're not using either an Assadian or a Foucauldian model. So in other words, I'm going to ask the panelists to self-discipline. Yes, although the Panopticon will be watching. And after the presentations, um, I'm going to invite the panelists to uh, speak to one another, to converse any points, questions, comments they might like to make about each other's papers uh, for a brief period. And then I'll open the floor up uh, to all of you to talk to them. Uh, and we'll end again, hopefully, uh, inshallah, at 2 o'clock. So our first presenter is Mr. James Riggin, who is a scholar of history and uh, the ethnography of religions at Florida State University. Uh, his paper is entitled Doing Things with Divine Words, Al-Rukya, Al-Shakhaya, and the Creation of an Islamic Modernity. Uh, so, to get started. On a chilly morning in November of uh, 2016, Yusuf's powerful voice amplified up by a small handheld microphone about the size of this one. Uh, echoed off the stone white, white stone walls of a small clinic located outside the old uh, Medina of Fez, as it does on a fairly regular, almost a daily basis. Dressed in a rich black robe associated with the Arabian Peninsula and that style, he sat on a small stool while he recited. Fatima, his patient, uh, lay in front of him on a body-length cushion. Her spasmatically jerking body uh, was covered with a thin brown blanket, a small red bucket stood beside the bed in case Fatima needed to vomit during the healing session. The two of them occupied the healing space of his clinic and left little room to spare. Yusuf began by reciting al-Fatiha, the opening surah of the Quran, uh, recited by Muslims everywhere during ritual prayers. As the recitation continued, the volume increased and the verses echoed off the walls. Just as the sound of the Quran began to beat against my skin and reverberate in my ears, Fatima began to react. Her right leg lifted, kicking out from under the blanket, and started to shake. Her head rocked side to side. Suddenly, her right arm flew out, fully extended to the side, and from her mouth came a long, raspy scream. She screamed again and again, yelling at Yusuf to stop, to let her be, and stop reciting the, stop reciting the Quran. Yusuf continued. Eventually, after about 13 minutes of continued recitation, Yusuf paused. As the recitation stopped, Fatima's body calms down, and she lay still on the cushion. He asked, what's your name? She didn't answer. He demanded, what's your name? He demanded again and again with more force, demanding the name. And eventually, the patient gave two names, Ibn Yamin and Isa. The two jinn, unseen spirits, identified themselves as Jewish. They'd felt the pain of the Quran, they said, during Yusuf's recitation and subsequently moved through Fatima's blood, causing her body to jerk. And it was Ibn Yamin and Isa that continued to react as Yusuf once more began reciting the Quran over his patient. Fatima hooked her hand, extending her pinky and index fingers, 
and wove them in front of him, wove them in front of her. Yusuf leaned forward, pressing with a faster cadence as he launched into verses about Musa overcoming the pharaoh, sources of Pharaoh and inadequacy of sorcerers against the power of God. He said, throw, and when they threw, they bewitched the eyes of the people and struck terror into them and presented a great feat of magic. And when they had thrown, Musa said, what you have brought is only magic. Indeed, Allah will expose its worthlessness. Indeed, Allah does not amend the work of corruptors, and Allah will establish the truth by his words, even if the criminals dislike it. And we inspired to Musa, throw your staff. And once it devoured what they were falsifying, so the truth was established and abolished was what they were doing. <clears throat> Finally, Ibn Yamin and Isa submitted to the recitation. Let's go, Yusuf demanded. You will accept Islam and leave her body. Yusuf began the shahada. After no reply, Yusuf prompted again, I bear witness that there is no God but God. With a guttural scream, Fatima repeated, I bear witness that there is no God but God. Yusuf led Ibn Yamin and Isa through the shahada, ritually including them in the Muslim community, before he forced them to swear that they were leaving Fatima's body and would never possess anyone again. As these words were pulled from her mouth, her right leg shot out under the blanket. Yusuf addressed his patient with customary greeting. Fatima replied, stood up, and the healing session was over. It had lasted no more than 20 minutes, and was an average treatment in Yusuf's clinic. In Morocco, Quranic healers like Yusuf perform hundreds, if not thousands, of healing sessions like this one uh, annually. He himself performs about 15 to 18 a day, and group sessions may include over 30 people. Healers cure patients in clinics such as the one I just mentioned, chronic schoolhouses, homes, and mosques. Nor is the system limited to Morocco. Scholars reference the practice in Uzbekistan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Britain, France, the Netherlands, Algeria, Belgium, and Morocco. Primary sources indicate the practice also occurs in Malaysia, Pakistan, and the United States. During my field work, I spoke with healers not only from Morocco, but from Britain, France, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal, Gali, and Mali, Ghana, and Mali. Within that group were healers that had previously practiced in the Bahamas, Australia, India, Germany, and Mauritania. In other words, it's a global practice. Uh, and it matters to a great number of people. It matters because it's an issue of life and death. Cranic healing deals with the inevitable experiences of life, uh, illness, and death. And it opens up a way of understanding that scholarship, uh, I would argue, is largely ignored. It opens up and demonstrates that the Quran is not just a textual object or an oral object, but has a multimodal capacity and specifically a somatic or a bodily modality to it. Auroke <clears throat> Sharia, variously translated as legitimate incantation, white magic, Islamic exorcism, uh, is a system of healing that uses the Quran, Quranic healing. As a healer I work closely with stated simply, Rukia is medicine. Patients arrive with physiological symptoms such as joint pain, tightness in the chest, insomnia, and chronic headaches. Healers facilitate the curing and recovery of the patients by directly applying powerful verses to their bodies. Patients imbibe the Quran through their skin, nose, ears, and mouth to consume the divine text. Although the patients relate physiological symptoms, the underlying cause is frequently associated with the cult. According, healers diagnose patients with four broad diseases uh, the evil eye, envy, possession, or sorcery. But it's not 
operating through occult means necessarily. Technical manuals and healers explain the jinn as working through the nervous system. They employ a biomedical language. Uh, jinn constrict arteries. They tap nerves. All of that. <clears throat> so the basic argument that I'm laying out here is that the Quran has a somatic modality to it. And to begin with, I'll just briefly mention when I say uh, embodiment, which will come up. Uh, and I argue for an embodied perspective of this. Embodiment, drawing largely from Thomas Sordis uh, and phenomen phenomenology, the idea that the body is, has both a spatial and a temporal place, and that the history of the body is written into uh, Practices such as when you speak and say something correctly and people understand it, when you act correctly in any society, walking on the correct side of the road, all of these are ways in which the body's history comes to be. But the body also has a future, and that future has yet to be determined. And I would argue that Ruqya Sharia is a ritual in which the history, uh, as a disease modernity, as the healers I work with most closely would say, is rewritten into an Islamic modernity and a potential for a better future. Some scholars have said that Ruqya Sharia is in fact just a veneer of pre-Islamic practices or uh, indigenous practices, but this is not the case. It does have a Quranic precedent that appears in Heidelberg Papyrus Arab uh, 23, which is dated to the early 9th century. Uh, it appears in the canonical Hadith collections, which outline concerns of the licitness or illicitness of the practice, whether you should perform the practice with Quran or something else, as well as whether you can accept payment for that practice. It also appears in later literatures, uh, in Ibn Adin's Fihris, for instance, his bibli bibliography of Arabic text, as well as in Kashf of the Noon, uh, the Ottoman bibliography under both occult practices and medicinal practices. In the field of prophetic medicine, which rises in the uh, 9th and 10th centuries, this practice of reciting the Quran for specific diseases comes into prominence. But Ruqya Sharia really develops beginning in the 1980s with the rise of general Salafist principle and Islamist principle that there is something wrong with modernity and that it is causing problems. So when a patient goes to see a healer, uh, the healer will ask them several questions. And it can run up to the number of 100. It might take 20 minutes. It might take longer. And they ask questions such as, do you feel a prickling in your skin? Do you have heart palpitations? Do you have joint pain, specifically in the knees, the lower back? Uh, can you see well, or do you have any blurry vision, see any spots? And they ask how you've been sleeping. If you sleep well, if you have problems sleeping, if you see anything in particular when you're sleeping. And all of these reference, uh, and will be used to develop a fairly sophisticated uh, epidemiology on the part of the healer. Later, the healer will actually initiate the healing process. 
And this process occurs over three stages during any given healing session. The first stage involves placing the patient in contact with the Quran. In order to definitively diagnose patients, uh, healers such as Omar, a uh, healer I work most closely with, will recite verses from the Quran, such as, Asur, such as Al-Fatiha or 2.255, the famous throne verse, uh, and he recites these as he puts it, until they, referring to the patient, shakes. They may also use Quranic water obtained by reciting verses over the Quran and having the patient drink it. Other healers I interviewed made reference to practices involving writing it in a variety of substances on the patient's skin, uh, burning it as a form of incense, and eating it. The jinn experiencing this will become agitated in the patient's body and seek to move to a different location, thus resulting in the bodily movement. Jinn are, in this manner, as one healer put it, like microbes. After confirming an infection, the healer then recites more specific verses. For instance, as in the example I gave at the beginning, if the patient suffers from a variation of sorcery, which is the most common uh, illness I experienced and saw in Morocco, the healer will recite something about Musa overcoming the power of Pharaoh's sorcerers. If it recites just, if it relates just to Possession, the healer will recite something associated with Suleiman and his mastery of the unseen world, his mastery of the jinn. And the point is that the verse should most closely approach the disease, uh, as the healers put it. Water is again used in this case, but it will be spit upon the patient to seal the pores of their skin. And, of course, culmination of all this is an interrogation uh, of the jinn on the part of the healer. The healer will ask them what their name is, what their religious identity is, where they are in the patient's body, and how they came to be there. Depending on the answers the patient gets will depend upon their treatment. But most often, the jinn identify as Jewish and Christian. In that case, more recitation comes, and eventually the jinn are made to convert, promise to not leave the patient's body, and exit the patient's body. And then in the final stage is the actual exorcism itself, in which case the healer recites the Quran, uh, again going back to more general verses, emphasizing the power of the Quran, the power and majesty of God, and the inefficacy of sorcery. And the jinn will leave, after which the healer will either say the patient's name uh, and see if they respond to that, or will just greet them and see if they respond to that. And if they do, then the healing session is over. Uh, the patient has been successfully healed. Occasionally, other treatments are scheduled and needed. And I say that this is an embodied perspective because the past history of the patient, not just the patient specifically, which may involve eating something or going to visit a sorcerer, as uh, the healers would say, becomes writ large. The history of colonialism comes to be, uh, specifically in Christian jinn that speak of these events. 
and the history of, as healers would put it, a decline in Islamic practice. They point to things such as increased drug use amongst youth, increased unemployment, uh, immigration patterns that disrupt families, particularly a specific practice of young women going to work in the Gulf uh, and leaving Morocco and separating families in that regard, are problems and they are causing disease. They cause disease both by putting people into contact with the jinn and forcing people to go to seek uh, help from sorcerers, which is kind of pit against the practice of rukia, which is given with gifts. Uh, that's how you do payment as opposed to sorcery, which is an explicitly capitalist enterprise. You go in individually uh, and contract a service. And these come to be. They uh, break down the familiarity of the world, breaks, causing the experience of disease and the biosocial body, so all those biological and compo social components come to be in front of the healer. The healer then interrogates to find out what the problem is and starts to rewrite it by reciting the Quran. And in particular, one verse which often gets recited during the stage is, noon by the pen and that which they write. And so he will recite this again and again as he starts to re-inscribe a particular Islamic modernity based off of the intellectual genealogy of Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, coming through Al Jazeera and Al Dahabi specifically uh, onto the patient's body. And then of course the patient leaves, having been healed. But as the work of Rudolf Ware uh, and Helen Boyle have demonstrated the Islamic and work here, presented here, specifically on pilgrimage. Islamic knowledge is an embodied knowledge. And although he speaks in terms of morality, I argue for a more material understanding that the Quran, like the jinn, now runs through the patient's blood. And that as the patient travels through society, just as that environment caused their body to break down, their body now works in reverse and starts to cure that environment. So it is accurate in my mind uh, to consider the Quran not just as a text or an oral phenomenon, as it does going back to Noldecki and Goldseer all the way up to the revisionists in Wandsboro and even contemporary scholarship, uh, Christina Nelson, uh, Neuwirth, Enoch Cohen, and others, but to consider the Quran as a multimodal object. It exists as a text, certainly, and as uh, an oral performance, but it also exists across a wide spectrum. And it is inherently powerful in any form. This power does not come from uh, what Webb Keen will call transduction, but from using the most appropriate tool for the job. The Quran is made up of words and can be even broken down into letters. The same words appropriate for healing body may not be appropriate for bringing rain to drought-stricken crops, just as I would not use a surgical scalpel to carve a turkey. 
as Ruth Finnegan discusses, words are tools of action, and that action implies a modal aspect. Accordingly, it is not only the words of Quranic exorcism that are important, but how they exist as well. This can take the form of written verses, recited passages, inhaling incense, ingesting liquid substances, and eating Quranic food. Most importantly for healing practices, however, is that all these instances result in a bodily expression and a bodily cure. And I have always have looming in the back of my mind two instances whenever I think about this. First was the first night I spoke to a jinn. Omar, a healer I worked most closely with, was treating a patient, Layla, and his loud voice filled the dark room as he recited directly into Layla's ear, noon by the pen and by the record which they write. Omar kept repeating this over and over in an effort to force the jinn out. And second was another healer in Fez who explained that Rukhya Sharia works through vibrations. Drawing on theories of physics, he said that everything is a vibration and that the Quran is no different. It leaves your mouth and it travels into the patient and through that vibration cures the incorrectness in theirs. In other words, both the Quran and the human body have a material connection. So in conclusion, I would like to emphasize that I do not think the Quran can, uh, well, I would not think that the Quran cannot be fruitfully investigated as either scriptural or oral performance. It certainly can. However, we must also take seriously scholars such as Thomas Sordis to emphasize the centrality of the body, and Manuel Vasquez to emphasize the centrality of the material aspect of scripture. More importantly, we must also take seriously, uh, uh, at least for me, my research participants. When healers speak to me of the technique that he, uh, healing verses should approach the disease and that the Quran enters the body, I should expand my view of the Quran uh, accordingly. And it has forced me to reconsider the Quran as a single textual unit, for instance, for legal or theological interpretation. And instead, I must look at it also as a collection of words and phrases. Those words are not only sites of expression and meaning, but potential sources of action. Such actions, however, require a mode of implementation. Sharia, therefore focuses, forces us to reconsider the many forms the Quran and other scriptures may take, from te textual objects to scented smoke. In other words, it forces us to consider the thingness of the Quran and the thingness of our bodies and the relationship between them. After all, if the jinn is part of the natural world in uh, the worldview of my participant, run through the blood and stimulate the nervous system, so too must the Quran. Thanks so much, uh, James. It was wonderful. Um, our next paper will be offered jointly uh, by Professor Zachary Wright, of, uh, who teaches history and religion at Northwestern University in Qatar, and uh, by Dr. Adam Larson, who is a lecturer in English at Weill Cornell Medicine, also in Qatar. Um, and this paper is called Pious Devotions as Islamic Intellectual History, the Prayers of the Tijaniya in North and West Africa. Thank you. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Salat wa salam ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Inshallah, abda bi dua manasib li hadhal kalam, kalaman al-yom. Ismuhu, ya manazara jameela wa sitra kabiha wa lam yaakhith bil-jirirati wa lam yahtaka sitra wa ya adhim al-afwi ya hasna tajawazi يا واسل مغفرتي يا باسل اليدين برحمة 
يا سامي كل نجوى يا منتهى كل شقوى يا كريم الصفي يا ذيم المني يا مكير مكير الأثرات يا مبديا بنعم بنعم قبل استقاقها يا ربي ويا سيري ويا مولاي يا غاية رغبتي أسألك أن لا تشويه خلكتي ببلاء الدنيا ولا بذاب النار Translates so I'm just beginning with the dua that's relevant to our presentation today also to pretend that we're from an Arabic-speaking country. O you who has made manifest what is beautiful and concealed what is ugly, who has not taken us for our crimes nor snatched away the veil covering our faults. O you who is prodigious in pardon, splendid in transcendence, expansive in forgiveness, hands outstretched in mercy. O you who hears every intimate discourse, who ends every complaint, O bountiful in remission, great in bestowal, O refuge for stumblers, O source of unearned blessing. O my Lord, my master, my protector, O goal of my longing, I ask that you not disfigure my Mohammedan form by the affliction of the world or by the punishment of the fire. So this is a, a, a dua that is uh, authenticated hadith and it's supposed to have been a, a gift from uh, the angel Jibreel to the Prophet, such that, there's um, my... Um, whoever recites it, Allah grants as reward equal to the number of created entities in the seven heavens, in paradise, and hellfire, the throne and the footstool, the number of horizons and rain and oceans, and number of pebbles and sand. And Allah the Most High will give the reward of 70 prophets, all of whom delivered their messages. Um, so this is a, a prayer that um, if you Google it, you'll find the first um, instances of it of its appearance coming in Tijani websites. Uh, it figures prominently within the Hazab al-Urad of um, Shaykh Ahmad Tijani, this collection of prayers. Um, and interesting enough though, however, you, you find it has a wide circulation. So um, uh, my colleague, we were discussing this, this prayer, um, and he said, oh yeah, I was at the Tarweeh prayer at Sunset of Mosque in Qatar, and there's a Somali uh, Qari, Abdurrahman al-Sufi, very famous um, Quran reciter, who in the, in the supplication in the Ramadan prayer was reciting this dua. And I, and I said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So um, I'm very honored that um, Adam Larson could, be, um, could help me take up this question. And essentially it looks at, um, you know, the, 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 these, um, the collections of supplications as windows, not only into the deep ocean of Islamic pious aspirations, but also uh, as windows into intellectual exchange across vast geographical space and through generations of Muslims. And for the Tijaniya in particular, analysis of prayers uh, reveals the ways in which the Tijaniya saw its own relationship to prior Islamic and Sufi traditions, inscribing itself at the foundations of Islamic pious devotional practices and endowing pre-existing practices with heightened grace and power. And I think it's interesting that in the Hazab al-Urad, um, only three of the prayers mentioned, and it's quite voluminous, over 200 pages, um, are actually specific to Shaykh Ahmad Jani himself. And these are um, salawat, uh, different forms of prayer upon the Prophet. Jawaratul Kamal, Yukut al-Haqqa'iq, Salat al-Ghaybiyah. These are prayers that the Prophet uh, gave to Shaykh Ahmad Jani directly according to Tijani tradition, but all of their prayers, um, if you dig a little deeper, even though it's, it's often not referenced as such, if you dig a little deeper, you'll find that they're pre-existing in, in other um, 
Islamic and, and Sufi sources. So that's our, our introduction. Okay. Yeah. All right, so uh, before his grand illumination as Fath al-Akbar, Ahmed al-Tijani traveled across North Africa and the Middle East seeking scholars and mystics, collecting powerful prayers and invocations. Many of these prayers are gathered in the order's two primary prayer mantles, which are Ali Harazm Barada's Jawahir al-Ma'ani and al-Hajj Omar Tal's Kitab al-Mahiz rahim These successors to Ahmed al-Tijani, representing North and West Africa respectively, gathered and interpreted prayers and invocations from diverse sources, many of which had been recited in the Islamic world for generations. This demonstrates the long-standing involvement of North and West African Muslims in the 18th and 19th centuries uh, with the scholarly networks and communities that, uh, and as well as the, the, uh, the significant contribution that they made to the intellectual and spiritual fabric of this age. Uh, so we're arguing that uh, Tijani prayer manuals offer an important but often overlooked source for the intellectual and religious history of the 18th and 19th centuries, especially in North and West Africa. So they shed light on the construction of Islamic religious identity and aspirations and offer insight into how early Tijani adherents understood the sources and merit of their tradition. The manuals demonstrate that religious movements like the Tijaniya were not heterodox local expressions of Islam but rather were intimately involved in the scholarly discourses of communities stretching from North and West Africa to Egypt, Arabia, and even India that defined the very nature of Islamic piety and practice in the 18th and 19th centuries. So we maintain that close analysis of these manuals will provide better understanding of the religious aspirations of this period, which include meeting the Prophet Muhammad, interacting with angels, prophets, and saints, and receiving God's forgiveness and reward. From a rhetorical perspective, however, the authors aim to verify, or have the Tijani doctrine and practice, which includes the prayers and invocations, by providing textual, logical, and spiritual evidence to support Tijani claims and build trust in the tremendous spiritual rewards that accompany individual prayers and invocations. In this way, the manuals gave Tijani adherents a reliable, practical way to realize their spiritual aspirations in a time of great social and political change. The Tijani prayer, prayers and invocations that we analyzed came from two main sources from these texts. Um, so there was those that are sourced to the Quran and the prophetic Sunnah, and those that are sourced to the wider Sufi tradition. So from the first category, we looked at Surah Al-Fatiha, Ayat Al-Hirs, um, Salat Al-Istikhara, the prayer for guidance. But from the second category, there are, uh, there are, well, there are many other formulations of the first. And in the second category, we looked at uh, Salat Al-Fatiha, Musaba'at uh, al-Ashar, the ten sevens, Asma'al Idrisiya. But for the sake of brevity, I'm, I'm going to just focus right now on uh, Surah Al-Fatiha and Salat Al-Fatiha. So in Jawah al-Ma'ani, Tijani is reported to have said, The Quran is the best remembrance. When recited, the Lord, glorious and exalted, is the one performing the recitation, and he, the servant, is the one listening. And this is the door of the arrival of God. For Muslims, more generally, reward lies in the Qur'an's every letter, as has been discussed, as attested in the hadith of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, who reported from the Prophet, whoever recites a letter from the Book of God, then he will receive one good deed as ten good deeds like it. I do not say that alif, lam, meme is one letter, but rather alif is a letter, lam is a letter, and meme is a letter. So building upon this sentiment, Al-Hajj Umar Tal wrote, the reward of the Qur'an is such that if you gathered all the prayers and invocations from every soul in the world one by one, and all of God's names outward and inward, and all the good deeds from every created being, 
and every act of worship from every soul in the world, and you gathered the reward of all that we mentioned, all of it, it would not equal the reward of one letter of the Qur'an. And that is excluding the Al-Fatiha, i.e., which has a greater reward. In Tal's view, a single letter of the Qur'an surpasses all other prayers and invocations and even acts of physical worship because the Qur'an forms their very, their very foundation and basis. So when asked about the Qur'an's greatest chapter, the Prophet Muhammad replied, It is praise be to God, the Lord of the worlds, the seven oft repeated, the mighty Qur'an that I was given. And he also said, By him in whose hand lies my soul, in neither the Torah, the Psalms, the Gospel, nor the Qur'an was the like of it revealed. So following from this, Jawahla Ma'ani records an encounter between Ahmad Tijani and the Prophet that confirms Al-Fatiha's tremendous spiritual rank. Um, he quotes in there, the Messenger of God informed me that every recitation of Al-Fatiha has the reward of reciting the entire Qur'an. I asked him, uh, Harazm asked him, or the, 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 uh, Tijani asked the Prophet, some reports have reached me that whoever recites Al-Fatiha once attains the reward of every praise that all of God's creation has ever praised him with in all the world. He replied, in Al-Fatiha is more than that. He who recites it is given the reward of each of its letters and the letters of the seven and the letters of the whole Quran. In each letter are seven palaces and seven huris. This resonates with the earlier ahadith uh, by emphasizing the multiplying effects of the Quranic letters. However, uh, so this connects the, the Tijani tradition into the, to the broader uh, Muslim discourses about the merits of the Quran. However, the greater share of the discussion in these two texts um, for the, are about the merits of reciting al-Fatiha while intending God's supreme name, the Ism al-A'dham, which is a secret given only to a select few. And the supreme name was so central to the early Tijani community that uh, al-Hajj Omartel devotes an entire chapter to upholding his claim of knowledge to it. Uh, he, so the story goes, he learned it from his sheikh, Muhammad al-Ghali, in, uh, in the Hejaz also from an angel, an unnamed saint. Uh, he learned it from Ahmed Tijani and from the prophet himself. So these various sources increased him in certainty of, of the name, verified the genuineness of his account to his audience, and confirmed his spiritual authority. For as Tijani stated, God only bestows knowledge of the supreme name on those he has singled out for his love. Uh, he also explains that whoever recites the fact here with the intention of the supreme name, uh, attains 70,000 spiritual stations from what God has created in, in, in the garden. When he utters it, four noble angels receive it. They say to God, verily so-and-so mentioned your name. He replies to them, record him from the people of Felicity, Ahl Sa'ada, and among the neighbors of Muhammad. The angels remember him with God in all his worlds, and, mention, and the mention of every angel is multiplied ten times. This is for he who recites al-Fatiha with the previously described intention, showing the importance of niyyah, of intention. Along with all of this, for each letter of the Fatiha, 200 good deeds are written for him and a bad deed is not recorded. He becomes of God's beloved people and those who draw near. These are the known recorded secrets, so know them and do not be ignorant. So as a form of secret knowledge, the supreme name imbues its holder with the spiritual authority to guide the Tijani community and perhaps Muslims more generally. This is certainly the intended allusion to Tijani's statement that the Mahdi, or the savior of the Islamic world, appearing near the end of time, would receive the initiation in the Tijaniya. And the knowledge of Al-Fatiha in particular, the Mahdi will take, uh, will take Al-Fatiha from us. This is a statement of Tijani. Uh, so this is uh, in regards to, the, uh, to Surah Al-Fatiha, but looking from, to Salat Al-Fatiha, which is uh, often ascribed to the Tijaniya, uh, 
we find that it was actually not from uh, Tijani himself, but was already extant. Uh, it probably came most likely through uh, an earlier Shadani affiliation. Uh, Tijani himself in these texts affirms that uh, Muhammad al-Bakri al-Siddiqui wrote this, this text or received it, and he mentions its merit. And actually, at one point in uh, Jawah al-Ma'ani, he actually leaves Salat al-Fatih for another prayer with ostensibly greater merit until the Prophet Muhammad orders him to return to it in a wakeful vision. Uh, Jawah al-Ma'ani recounts, um, when I learned a blessing on the Prophet that equals 70,000 readings of Dalai al-Khairat, I left Salat al-Fatih and busied myself with this prayer instead due to his great merit. Then the Prophet ordered me to return to Salat al-Fatih. When he commanded me, I asked him about its merit. He told me that one recitation of Salat al-Fatih equals six readings of the Qur'an. All the praise that has ever occurred in existence, every remembrance, every major and minor supplication, and 6,000 readings of the Qur'an as remembrance, as dhikr. By ordering him to recite this prayer, the Prophet himself revealed its status. So although it was already established in the Sufi tradition, this mystical intervention cemented its position in the Tijani order. Both Jawahal al-Ma'ani and Kitab Rima Rahim add a layer of complexity to this account by asserting that al-Bakri was actually not the author of Salat al-Fatih, but rather received it from an angel on a scroll of light, Sahifa min al-Nur. The Sheikh said, this is a quote from the text, the Sheikh said, the Prophet informed me that al-Bakri did not author Salat al-Fatih, but rather he directed himself toward God for a long while, imploring God to grant him a prayer on the Prophet with, with the reward and secret of all the other prayers. Al-Bakri endured in his request for some time, and God Most High answered his prayer. An angel came to him with his prayer emblazoned on a scroll of light. Then the Sheikh said, when I considered this prayer, I discovered that the worship of all human beings, jinn and angels, does not outweigh it. So as the essence of all other prayers on the Prophet, Salat al-Fatih carries considerable reward, and indeed, Jawah al-Ma'ani suggests a hierarchy of prayers. A single recitation of the supreme name equals 6,000 recitations of Salat al-Fatih, and a single recitation of Salat al-Fatih corresponds to every remembrance and praise every penance, every supplication in the universe, great or small, 6,000 times. However, while much of the discussion centers on the quantity of the rewards, it also suggests the critical importance of quality, both of the reciter and the sheikh. Quality here involves unquantifiable traits like uh, God consciousness or taqwa or genuineness, siddiq, which dynamically interact with the invoked prayers to generate a tremendous quantity of reward. In this way, Jawahar Ma'ani reports our master Ahmad Tijani said, regarding the merit of Salat al-Fatih, reciting it once is like worshipping for 128 years. I refer to those immersed, or mustabrak, mustabrak is the word he uses, in it so much that they recite Salat al-Fatih 10,000 times between the night and the day. So in this passage, Atijani is restricting the reward, i.e. the 128 years of worship, to a specific class of reciters, those immersed in Salat al-Fatih. However, although the reciter's qualities are important, the sheikhs are even more important as all Tijani adherents profit from the status, his status as seal of the saints. Uh, thus, when Barada asked Tijani, is this 128 years of worship given to those who remember through you? He replied, yes. Sure. Um, so I'm just going to thank you very much, Adam. Uh, that's the, the, the crux. I'm, what I wanted to talk about um, uh, the second half, or is, or only in the last five minutes, um, is uh, the the section uh, of the of these other Sufi prayers, um, and uh, so among them being uh, Hizbul Saif, uh, or the Horizon of the Sword, um, which is in some accounts sourced uh, to the Prophet, or at least to the authorship of Jafar al-Sadiq, um, 
And, and the Tijani tradition says, well, we have two narrations for this. One is through the Jawahir al-Khams, of course, this book um, coming out of India in the 16th century. Um, uh, it's a, from the Shatari Sufi order, which makes its rounds throughout West Africa and, and, and in North Africa as well, primarily through the vehicle of the Tijaniya, and I wrote about that, that previously. Um, so when, when Shah Mahjani gives uh, his Hizbul Saif to his disciple Ali Harazim, he says, now go make tahqiq, go verify it. He says, well, how do I do that? He says, well, go um, see the Jinn Shamharush. And the Jinn Shamharush is a Sahaba, is a companion of the Prophet. It's still alive for the last 1,200 years. Um, Shamarush, interestingly enough, uh, appears in many other accounts. He appears in Aaron Pettingru's uh, dissertation. She's talking about so this jinn in, um, basically um, negotiates between warring tribes in Mauritania. He's a Muslim jinn, it's good. Uh, and he um, also appears in the Sanad in some, from some of the hadith of Abdul Hayyil Katani out of Morocco. He appears in the Salwat al Anfas of another Katani earlier on. Um, so this, uh, this name comes up in many different places. So Ali Harazim goes to meet the jinn uh, and, and uh, talks to him, and the jinn says, yes, I want to transmit to you uh, his uh, Saifi, and I got it from the Prophet. So in the Jenny tradition, Ahmed Sukairaj out of Marrakesh says, well, in our, uh, we have two narrations then for Hizbul Saifi. One is through Zuhal Khams and one is through the Jinn Shamharush, back to the Prophet directly. Um, so this is an example then, of course, the, the benefit of uh, Hizbul Saifi is uh, that equivalent to the fast of Ramadan, to standing in prayer on the night of power, or to an entire year's worth of worship. Uh, I mention it because Shaykh uh, Mujani uh, then says, uh, Surat al-Qadr, saying al-Qadr has the same merit as Hizbul Saifi. And even better than that is the Dua Yaman Azra Jamila that I started with. Um, next, I, I want to talk very briefly about Musab al-Ashir, which is this prayer that um, comes from Abu Talib al-Maki, uh, lives in the, ten, you know, in, the, in the 10th century, uh, who claims that um, Ibrahim Timi got it prior to him from Khidr, uh, who is the mystical guide or the immortal guide of Moses. Um, and that when he, the heat was such that when he got it, he couldn't eat or drink for four months. Um, and, you know, if you recite it, then yeah, no, no sin is written for you on that day and people will love you, etc. Um, and so when Shah Mahjani takes it from his teacher, Mahmoud al-Kurdi, who is a very famous uh, Khalwati sheikh in uh, Cairo, uh, Mahmoud Kurdi says, well, I also got it confirmed by the appearance of Khidr, who, who gave it to me again. And so the incorporation of this prayer, then, that is well known within the Sufi tradition uh, through um, uh, the appearance of Khidr, then is reincorporated within. Uh, we could go on and on. There's also, we can say the same thing about Hizb al-Bahri, that the Prophet, which is the horizon of the sea in the Shazali tradition, with the Prophet comes again to Shaykh Hajani and reads it for him again. And so Umar Tal says in Kitab al-Rimah, well, we, really we can call it Hizb al-Ahmidi as well, because uh, the Prophet came just like he did to Abu Hassan al-Shazali to give it again to Shaykh Hajani. And the last of the Asma Idrisiya, or the Idrisi names, um, going back to look at the Juwar al-Khams, really the, the, these names are called the greatest names. They're 41 different names, and they really comprise a half or a third, at least a third of that book. This is a reflection on these names. And very interesting, the 40th name is allegedly the name by which the Prophet recited in the cave of Hira before he got revelation. Um, so in, 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 in the different angels appear to him in different forms. Um, um, and so here again, um, 
Ali Harazam has to go make tahqiq, and he has to go to the fourth heaven uh, and meet Prophet Idris and get uh, Asma Idrisi again. So there you see the, the Chijani tradition sort of um, uh, in this back and forth between the Shaykh and disciple making tahqiq, making this verification of the previous um, uh, tradition and sort of endowing it with a, a, a sort of heightened authority. Um, the last thing, I, I think I'm out of time, huh? One more minute. Right, so um, I think what we're trying to point out here um, is, you know, from, from what Shah Mujani said about Fatiha and the greatest name of the Fatiha, which incidentally is different than the one that was mentioned earlier, right? Um, uh, Essentially, he's wanting to say, okay, you're going to be reading Fatiha al-Kitab. All Muslims are reading this opening chapter of the Quran, but you're going to be reading it differently. Even if you don't have permission for that greatest name, you're going to be thinking about what it is. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, Muhammad al-Sunusi, who founds the Sanusi Yaturika, he says, well, look, I took the Quran from Shaykh Bajani in Fes after he took it from the Prophet. Now, Muhammad Sanusi is not a Tijani, um, so I think it, what it points out, and in, in, in even... Um, Shaykh uh, or the Chijani tradition will say elsewhere, you know, uh, give people permission for Salat al-Fatih, even if they're not Tijani. Because Muhammad al-Bakri said, whoever recites Salat al-Fatih one time and doesn't enter paradise, let him come arrest me on the day of judgment. Um, so that you, you can send people to paradise just by giving them permission for Salat al-Fatih. Um, the, the last thing I would uh, sort of conclude with is this statement of, uh, and I heard a similar thing came up in the previous panel. Um, uh, Imam al-Jinaid, so Shaykh al quotes this in Juhar Mani, and he's talking about all these great benefits, I mean, aren't we so awesome that we can, and he reminds people, he says, well look, um, Imam al-Jinaid says, if you are doing 1,000 years of worship and you turned away from God for one lahza, one moment, then you could lose, you will lose everything in, a, in a, a thousand years of worship. So it's really not, um, it's, it's not a, a sort of a supremacy. It, uh, it's not, these exhortations are not to sort of, Shahmajani, I don't think, means them to, to, to see the Tijani disciples as better, better human beings, essentially. He's trying to return them and to, to think more critically about the, the, the very the sort of actions that they're already doing um, and to put that into practice and, and have greater tarkis, greater... Uh, focus. Anything you want to add? One, five seconds. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, warm thanks to Zach and Adam for another wonderful paper. This uh, material that we're hearing is so rich and, and complex. It's really an ascetic ordeal to try to compress it um, into 20 minutes. And thank you so much to the panelists for that. Um, our next uh, speaker will be Mr. Paul Anderson, um, who is a, uh, a student of the history and cultures of Muslim societies in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at Harvard, here at Harvard, um, and um, channeling, I guess, Vivian Segal in 1940, uh, Pal Joey. His uh, paper is entitled Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. Uh, a, rec a reconsideration of the evil eye and Rukhya through the eth through ethnographic analysis. Great to have you, Paul. Uh, thank you very much. All right. Um, I just want to uh, start off by quickly apologizing to my panel for um, not providing my paper. Um, is off in India doing research, and um, yeah. So just 
quickly, um, I ask Maalish for your uh, indulgence on this. All right, um, so this paper was essentially inspired by um, the amount of time that I lived in Egypt. I lived in Egypt for five years, um, largely during the, um, the Arab Spring, and, and um, what I'm describing in this paper are um, rituals that I saw performed relatively regularly, all things considered. Um, one particular uh, story comes to mind. Um, when I was living with uh, my Egyptian roommate, Salim, um, he witnessed at work um, someone get their arm torn off, sorry to be very um, graphic, uh, by a passing car. Um, and, and all of a sudden, all these terrible incidents seemed to start happening. Uh, to both of us in our circle of friends. And he became convinced that we had, um, the evil eye had fallen on us. Uh, um, and one of the things that he suggested we do was to do the particular ritual that I'm talking about, which is usually referred to just as which just means incense and a doll. Um, there's a well-known Egyptian proverb that states the evil eye splits the stone in half. Um, and it sort of attests to what is considered to be the power of the evil eye as it is understood in Egypt. Uh, as I'm sure many people know, the evil eye is hardly confined to Egypt. It has a extremely widespread um, usage to many parts of um, the Mediterranean, uh, going as far as, uh, as India, it was called Nazar or Najar um, in Urdu. Um, and of course, there are differences in the way that people deal with the problems that they attribute to the evil eye. Um, but the, there are some fundamental similarities that we can argue for. Um, in, the, in the context of the Muslim world, um, the evil eye, as I said, Ayn uh, al-Hasad, literally the eye of envy, um, it's part of Quranic discourse, um, Surat al-Falaq, which um, James, uh, I believe, mentioned. Um, and it's mentioned not entirely literally, but with a mention that people are surely going to know exactly what is being um, referred to. So it's in Surah Al-Falaq, as I said. Um, it says, قُلْ عَوْذُ بِالرَّبِّيَ فَلَقِي مِنْ شَرِّ مَا خَلَقَ وَمِنْ شَرِّ غَاسِقِينَ إِذَا وَقْبَ وَمِنْ شَرِّ النَّفَثَاتِ فِي الْعُقْدِ وَمِنْ شَرِّ حَاسِدٍ إِذَا حَسَدَ um, Which means, Say, I seek refuge in the Lord of daybreak from the evil of that which he created, from the evil of darkness when it is intense, and from the evil of malignant witchcraft, and from the evil of the envier when he envies. So particularly the last, um, the last line and the last two words in particular. So the idea here is that it is 
It is both part of the cultural background. It exists in pre-Islamic society, um, at least as far back as, as ancient Egypt. Um, but at the same time, it is absolutely a part of Quranic discourse um, and Hadith discourse. It's, it is part of the Islamic um, written tradition as well as the daily practiced uh, tradition. However, the evil eye is not magic. It is not seh. It is, people never refer to it, at least in my personal um, anecdotal, admittedly, knowledge. Um, but, and again, James referred to this a few times, but um, there are several texts which talk about the evil eye in detail, several classical texts. Uh, Ibn Khaldun, for example, devotes um, a long amount of information to talking about the evil eye. And he specifically says that it is not um, magic. He calls it, um, he calls it a kind of um, psychic power in, in a way. Um, and he says the, the, the really important difference between Sehr and between Ayn al-Hasad is the fact that according to like most fiqh interpretations, someone cannot be held accountable for any damage that they do because of the evil eye, as opposed to through magic where you absolutely can be held accountable, legally speaking. All right, so um, Maloney identifies in his um, collection of articles uh, seven basic features of the evil eye. It's a power that usually emanates from the eye or sometimes the mouth. Usually in this context, it is the eye, of course. At some object or person, um, the stricken object or person is something of value um, and its destruction or uh, injury is sudden. The one casting the evil eye may not know he has the power. And this is, this is very essential because in most cases, um, most people will say, yes, the evil eye, you usually get it from your friends or your family um, accidentally, more or less. They're not trying to, but through carelessness or, um, yeah, there's a very, there's a very automatic almost, or mechanical way that the evil eye works that I'll, I'll get into more details in a second. Um, so the affected may not be able to identify the source of the power. The evil eye can be deflected or its effects modified or cured by particular devices, rituals, and symbols. Um, the belief helps to explain or rationalize sickness, misfortune, or lost possessions such as animals, crops, and finally, in at least some functioning of belief everywhere, envy is a factor, an essential factor. All right, so getting to more to the meat of this, now that we've discussed the evil eye. Um, so what I am talking about, the, the ritual that I'm talking about, Bukhur wa Arusa, is generally what is termed ruqya, um, or ruqya, as it's referred to in Egyptian Arabic. Um, and as we'll see in the, the two du'a that are part of this ritual, the same root in ruqya is used several times. Um, so this is, and ruqya is referred to specifically um, within hadith discourse, um, which I will mention in, in a moment. 
All right, so the ritual is not is also not defined as magic. Rukia is not magic, all right? Um, and indeed, it is questionable as, as to whether this is a useful category for analysis, because almost every time if you ask someone, you know, if they are doing some kind of quote-unquote incantation or using Quranic verses in order to achieve a particular kind of effect, and you ask them, oh, is this magic? They'll say, absolutely not. Now, no one is going to say that, oh, yes, I'm doing, I'm doing magic. Um, so this is what is generally called ta'wif, or like apotropaic um, incantations, more or less, making use of specific authorized um, pieces of text, which are usually special verses from the Quran. Uh, Ayatul Kursi is very common. Um, um, the Surat al-Falaq is very common. So these are often, they've been inscribed on like talismans or on pieces of paper. Um, and people carry them around with them, and sometimes we'll say, well, that the evil eye has been deflected off of them, that, say, the talisman will break or the paper will, will crumble because the evil eye has split it in half, as I previously mentioned. So um, apotropaic rituals in Egypt form a continuum of authorized and authorizing discourses which are deeply intertwined with normative religious practice, in quote marks. Yet at the same time, they may occupy a space which is some way considered distinct from religion. So this is, um, it occupies what we call a very liminal space, um, these particular types of rituals. And for the purposes of this paper, I have adopted Rappaport's definition of ritual as the performance of more or less invariant sequences of formal acts and utterances not entirely encoded um, not entirely encoded by the performer. Sorry for the um, mistake there. All right, so the, the form of the ritual. All right, it starts with Basmallah, Basmallah Rahman Rahim. Normally, it's typical. Um, you have to be in a state of uh, ritual purity, Tahara. Um, you have to do, um, you have to wash yourself in order to be able to do this. Um, so you create a doll by tearing unmarked pieces of paper into a human shape after lighting a brazier with, with incense. Um, and this could superficially rep represent, um, resemble European traditions of sympathetic magic, quote unquote, with a uh, poppet. Um, but I would say that the form is, is, very, is still very different because it is never used to achieve a negative effect. Right. The doll is pierced with a pin several times while repeating, I have laid a beneficial charm on you against the evil eye of so-and-so. So this is how I'm choosing to uh, translate ruqya in this particular context. The pierced doll is then, it's waved over the brazier and then over the uh, sufferer of the person who's supposed to be suffering from the evil eye, if they are present. Usually you do this when they are present. And then there are two du'a, which are, or supplicatory prayers that are recited. And one thing that I want to mention is that um, in my research, I have not found a text earlier than 1875, um, it's a journal, Al-Muqtataf, um, which uh, has a form of these uh, particular du'a, but they, do, they are not a part of 
um, the quote-unquote like classical textual tradition as far as I can tell. All right, so it starts out with The first charm is in the name of God and the second charm is in the name of God and the third is the protection of the Prophet Muhammad, son of Abdullah. Um, and I would note that these du'a are all performed in Egyptian Arabic, not in Fusha, not in classical Arabic. Right. And then second part, I have laid a beneficial charm on you and seek to enchant you in protection against anyone who has seen you and then has not invoked the blessings on the Prophet. Then the doll is set on fire while with the fire from the brazier of incense um, while the protectioner says the person doing the performing the ritual, um, their evil eyes burned up in hell, O Lord. And then the burning remnants of the doll are disposed of in water. I mean, we can identify like some, some very um, obvious uh, techniques that are going um, on here. Cleansing um, through the purification, purification, purificatory um, elements of fire and water during different points in, uh, in the ritual. Um, and the, the explicit notation of the people who may have cast the evil eye, but it is not an imprecation on them. It is just to get rid of the evil eye itself. And this is a, um, an article from uh, 2014, um, which I just think attests to the sort of universal characteristic of this, um, of this ritual in Egyptian society. So basically, um, this article says, uh, So um, a journalist, she, um, she said this particular prayer. She did ruqya for Sumaya Khashab um, on her particular TV program because she said, I'm, I'm, a, I'm scared for you that someone has given you the, the evil eye. Um, and she does it. I mean, she does a very abbreviated version. Um, I, I wish I had the video to show you. I searched for it. It used to be available on this site, but it's no longer there. But it's, it's very interesting to, to watch it. So um, some ob observations about the ritual. It, as I said, it is what is commonly termed ruqya, or ruqya in Egyptian Arabic, and it means a kind of incantation or charm. And more technically, the term refers to a type of blowing or puffing out words as uh, charms. And it is probably related to um, a previous term that we saw in Surah Al-Falaq, the nefathat, um, the, the witches that blow out um, evil charms on knotted pieces of ropes that was supposed to be the primary form of um, sahra, of magic, that was practiced in this uh, time period. So this is a, a kind of a positive breath, the breath of God in a way, um, in order to countermand miasma. 
Um, so the, as I mentioned, the du'a is not derived from the Quran or any particular religious text. And when I, I asked um, my, uh, my circle of friends, they said it's mishhakay fil Quran or hadith. It's not anything to do with the Quran or hadith. Um, it is a type of aida instead. It is a cultural tradition, an Egyptian tradition. Um, and the purpose of the ritual has been described as, uh, to me, as haga nefsiya, a kind of a psychological thing. Um, and for a psychological or mental reason, and nothing more. And I was, okay, and I was, I was again, very strongly told that this is not magic. I specifically asked, so do you consider this to be a type of like good magic? And it's like, no, there's no such thing. This is not magic at all, right? Um, I asked some things about the, the way that this is practiced, and notably, it tends to be practiced by women. Um, and they, they typically learn it from their mother, and then from their grandmother, and so on. Um, and there's some interesting commonalities with um, another practice called the czar. Um, and I don't want to go into too many details, but this has also been studied um, very uh, intensely as considered to be sort of like a liminal uh, haven for women seeking their own particular kind of authorized discourse that still is not, is kind of on the edges of quote unquote normative um, religious tradition. So despite the fact that the ritual takes place in a specifically religious space and makes use of religious implements and language, uh, its connection to religion is very specifically circumscribed. Um, via the Quranic verse, we have the evil eye, which is um, specifically said, yes, it exists. There is a hadith where the prophet is asked about the evil eye, and he says, al-ayn um, the, the evil eye is real. Um, and then he says that, um, that ruqya can be used um, for three specific kinds of things. Insect poison, um, rashes, uh, usually from ant bites, um, and the evil eye, specifically. So again, yeah, it's, it's arguably a kind of medicinal um, purpose more than anything else. And the thing with the evil eye is that it is viewed in very mechanistic terms. There is no um, central origin story that I've been able to find, no you know, Ur story about where the evil eye comes from. It is not something that is necessarily from the jinn or from demons or any kind of spirits. It is an automatic reaction that happens when people do not follow very specific guidelines, religious guidelines, such as saying when you compliment someone, mashallah, or you just don't compliment them. So there are very specific sets of things that you have to do and that you have to say to deflect the evil eye, if you have it, to get rid of it. Um, and this exists within a very logical kind of space. People will say, oh yes, oh, this is superstition. But the thing is that superstition doesn't necessarily mean irrational or illogical. It just operates on a different kind of um, intellectual wavelength, I would argue.
Okay, so the users, as I mentioned, do not consider themselves practitioners of magic, with the, which they regard it as a negative term. And that's my presentation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. Oh, that was wonderful also. Um, so our final presentation will be uh, offered by Professor Oludamani Ogunaike, who is Professor of Religious Studies at the College of William and Mary. Uh, and his presentation is entitled Poetry and Praise of Prophetic Perfection, a study of West African Arabic uh, poetry and its precedents. I'm so happy to see you nodding because I practiced for 15 minutes <laughs> with a native speaker. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Thank you, Professor Khan, for the invitation and organizing this conference. And to my fellow panelists, uh, both right now and earlier today, for their great presentations. Um, so I'm going to talk about uh, West African Madih poetry. And apologies, most of you in the audience will be familiar with these facts, but I always like to not assume too much knowledge. Um, so if uh, there's a recent survey by the Pew Charitable Trust that found that um, Sub-Saharan Africa, Sufism is most popular in Sub-Saharan Africa, all the regions in, in, in the, the Muslim world, with a whopping 92% of Muslims in Senegal uh, identifying as uh, belonging to a Sufi order or brotherhood. So that means if we talk about Islam in West Africa, Sufism is central. But perhaps more importantly uh, for this crowd, if we talk about contemporary Sufism, West Africa also has to be central. If you go to West Africa, uh, really any country, Nigeria, otherwise, You'll hear things like this. This is in a student dormitory. And soon a crowd forms. Or on the streets, whether in Kano or Dakar or Bamako. But as you can see, these are not just for specific, uh, what we would call, devotional set-aside activities. This is a naming ceremony for a child, and they're reciting the same poetry. So this uh, Arabic praise poetry is interwoven throughout daily life, throughout all geographic regions, throughout various times of life, when you're born, when you graduate, when you, oops, excuse me, uh, when you die, people recite these poetry, and everything in between. So this poetry is really interwoven within the, the very landscape and the lives of people. And it's not just, it's more evident if you go live there, but even if you look at the manuscript collections, the, uh, the Arabic literature of uh, Africa, those collections are other digitized collections of manuscripts. You look at West Africa, maybe 30 to 50% of the things you'll find there are verse, uh, and about 30 to 40% of that verse is praise poetry uh, on the prophet. So it's a huge, it dominates the literary output and the artistic output of the Muslims of the region, and yet the scholarship on it in Europhone languages is very small. Thankfully, we have a few people here who are working on it. Uh, but compared to, let's say, historical documents, which are much 
more rare. They've attracted a lot of attention. Uh, Mandih poetry, especially Arabic Mandih poetry, is, has really flown under the radar for a long time. And this is for a couple of reasons. One is for the myth of Islam noir, which in Rudolf Ware's uh, eloquent equation is Arab culture plus Islam equals Islam, African culture plus Islam equals syncretism. Um, and this leads to an assumed lack of an Arabic literary tradition or assumed deficiencies in Arabic literary production. So you often find these, even by scholars of uh, Islam and Africa, these patronizing assessments of African Arabic literary, uh, literary production, which is not shared by the Arabic language scholars from outside of the region. Um, also, especially with modern uh, European trained scholars, there's this binary uh, opposition created between devotional, the devotional, and the literary and intellectual. So that which is devotional is not lit purely literary and intellectual. Um, between the aesthetic and the ethical, between something which is derivative and formal and something which is creative and sincere. Uh, we have the convoluted, empty rhetoric of all of these complicated formulations versus sincerity and clarity, and uh, perhaps above all, the mystical versus the rational and the serious. Uh, also, something, another barrier to understanding and appreciating this poetry is there's no real popular analogy in the cultures that most of these scholars are coming from. So devotional poetry is really popular in the Romantic era in English and French, but since it's, you know, you don't, you're not going to go to a bookstore or go on Amazon and see a collection of devotional English or French poetry on the bestsellers list. Um, the closest thing you can think of to these poems are perhaps bio, biopics, you know, like Lincoln, the movie about Lincoln, or something like that, or campaign ads for politicians, maybe hymns, um, but there's no real popular analogy for what's going on here. Um, but despite the neglect of Western academics, this remains the most, by, by far the most popular form of poetry and even literature in both performance and study. So in this presentation, I'd like to examine why that's the case. Uh, but with caveat, Sheikh Mudubamba, one of the greatest poets of this tradition from Senegal, uh, 19, uh, yeah, 19th, 20th century, said, whoever approaches the poetry of the saints by grammar and prosody alone will suffer grave mistakes. That is, to understand what's going on here, we have to understand the linguistic theories, the cosmology, the metaphysics, of the poets themselves. Otherwise, we will make grave mistakes, as many scholars have done. Most of these um, poems contain within themselves an inherent paradox, and they explicitly enunciate this, the impossibility of praising the prophet. So uh, one famous example is we can, um, this uh, echoes uh, saying a hadith, the prophet says to God, we cannot count your praises, you are as you have praised yourself. But the poets apply this to the prophet. Ibn al-Farid, uh, Egyptian Sufi poet says famously, in the art of describing his beauty, time itself expires, and yet still there remains in him what has not been described. Abu Siri famously says in his Borda, the virtues of the messenger of God have no limit, so they cannot be expressed by human speech, and how can in this world can his reality be comprehended by people sleeping, distracted by their dreams? Among your miracles is the impossibility of describing you. Such counting cannot encompass them, so how can words contain your character traits? All the seas leave their shores. There's no end to describing which I could hope to reach, while speech always has a goal and an end. But your virtues are, and, and signs are like time, countless like the moments we enumerate in this. There are numerous other examples in famous poems. This is a famous one uh, from Sheikh Ibrahim Yas, uh, we've mentioned before, died in 1975, famous Tijani Sheikh, and the most popular, currently the most popular uh, author of Madih poetry, this praise poetry in the West African tradition. So he said, how can I praise him for whom Jibreel, the trusted servant, was a servant throughout the eight nights? How can I praise him when the entire cosmos is but a ray of his brilliance, and that's the beauty of men? How can I praise him when the seas and the rain are but a speck of his generosity? How can I praise him when all knowledge is but a drop from his river? How can I praise him when God has extolled him, bestowing everything upon him in totality, 
How can I praise Muhammad when he is the spirit of praise and the strongest of praises are exhausted? O you who diminishes all else, how without rushing in as an interloper amongst these crowds of people seeking gifts? So, but I'll stand and rush and beg for the help of a lord, a king. How great is the help of the possessor of majesty? By the little we have offered you of praise, and much as little compared to you, we are exhausted. This is no wonder since before me the best of the eulogizers languished in this field. The eloquent praised you and the tongues of all fell short of a tenth of a tenth of your beauty from the eloquence of Kaab and Hassan, these are famous companions of the prophet who wrote poems of praise uh, upon him, to Mambusiri, who's the author of the Burda, probably the most memorized poem in the world, the favored. It's but spittle coughed up out of longing, not worthy of your praise in the least, nor is that the, the masters of rhetoric, and the weakness of my addition is like that of the eloquent. But your praise has not ceased, nay, it will never cease, nay, speech would cease without this excellency. Please accept, O oh my beloved, with all acceptance, the contrived poetry of a useless man. So you see this again, beautifully, again and again, the impossibility of praising the prophet in poems praising him. It's actually a form of praising him. And this is uh, this impossibility uh, of the impossible verbal task of the authors is what I think lends, tends them to turn to poetry so often. Poetry is, in the Arabic term, a, a barzakh, a liminal reality that encompasses two opposites. Um, it's between them, but it also contains them. So it's a barzakh between silence and speech. So the poets say, I can't speak. It'll be inadequate, but I can't stay silent. So what do I do? I have to sing. That's the only, that's, that's the only recourse. Poetry is a barzakh between prose and music, between thought and feeling, between, in Arabic, awraq and adwaq, between written discursive things and direct experiences. Even the forms of poetry have this. Uh, rhythm, uh, all Arabic poetry has strict meter, is rhythm is a barzakh between motion and eternity or stillness. Rhyme is a barzakh between many sounds and one sound. You have the one sound repeating again and again at the end. Just as humanity and the prophet in particular are understood to be a barzakh between being and nothingness or body and spirit. And so poetry itself, as many of the Authors describe one Ali Adali uh, says, I, in order to praise the best of the servants, can only hope, help for help from his greatness. The miracle of poetry is attributed or described, understood as a miracle emanating from the prophet himself, from the greatness of the prophet. The fact that you're able to praise him, even though he's beyond all praise, is then attributed back to his uh, power. Now, it's not just any form of poetry that these authors use. They use the form of the Arabic qasida, which is a very particular form of poetry, which has usually... Uh, very old, very ancient, as pre-Islamic roots. It has uh, three sections. First is the nasib, or the amatory prelude, in which the poet stands at the ruins of the campsite of the beloved and bewails his emotional condition and how beautiful his beloved is and how much he wants to be with her. It's a state of separation. Then there's the rahil. It's a desert journey in which he crosses all kinds of dangers and faces obstacles and fights over them and bravely makes it finally to uh, the state of union with his beloved. And the final section is the madih section, the praise, in which the poet praises the addressee of the poem and usually presents a kind of request. So this is, you'll find this in pre-Islamic Arabic qasidas, in so-called secular qasidas, things addressed to rulers, to kings, uh, to great scholars. Uh, the Sufi qasida, though, reinterprets this. So the nasib still uses a lot of the same language as abandoned campsites and things like that. But the beloved is the prophet or God, but usually the prophet. And the state of separation is a state of spiritual separation, a lack of intimacy. And then the desert journey is the spiritual journey, the quest across different spiritual states. And finally, the Madih section of praise praises the final union or reunion with, uh, with the prophet. 
in the state of Fana, annihilation. Um, so the Arabic panegyric genre, uh, especially in Qasidas, one scholar has noticed, is, is uh, like a literary portrait. But it's a particular kind of portrait. It's a, it's a double portrait. It's both a portrait of the one praised and of the one praising, because it establishes and describes a relationship between both. And this uh, nicely mirrors or performs the elision between the subjectivities of the, the poet, composing poet and the prophet who the poet's praising. The goal of a much of the Sufi, uh, of the Sufi traditions of uh, which these poets come from is annihilation in union with the reality of the prophet. And so the Qasida, especially the praise poetry, in its very form kind of performs this elision of identity. Okay. So I'd like us to, in my paper, I try to consider praise poetry as several different kinds of, uh, I don't know what to call these categories, different ways in which the praise poetry functions and works and can be analyzed. So first, I suggest an analogy of a lullaby. So just as lullabies, you sing lullabies, you listen to lullabies for a particular function, they make you go to sleep. They cause a shift in consciousness. Now, the praise poetry is also meant to do the same thing. Its, its melodies and its rhythms and its words are beautiful, but they also, the, the, the beauty, the aesthetics, is not an end in and of itself. It's supposed to lead to a dramatic shift in consciousness. Except instead of putting you to sleep, it's supposed to wake you up to the inner reality of who you really are, of, of human perfection. Um, I also would like to consider poetry as dua, supplicatory prayer, as a kind of helia or talisman, an icon of the prophet as a form of dhikr, and then finally uh, a form of wujud, being consciousness and as an embodiment of the insanal camel, important Sufi idea meaning perfect human being or human perfection. So first is dua. There's a uh, hadith um, cited by a lot of these poets that says, uh, uh, the prophet said, anyone who composes a praise of me, even if it's just one verse, I will intercede for him on the day of judgment. So composing a verse in praise of the prophet is implicitly a request for intercession on the Day of Judgment. And these requests are also explicit in many, in fact, I'd say most of the, the poems in this genre. Um, there are several other hadith about how uh, dua, in, in, supplicatory prayer is not accepted, or hangs between heaven and earth until someone praises the prophet or invokes blessings upon him. And that invoking blessings on the prophet is the key to having supplicatory prayer answered. Uh, so a lot of the praise poetry takes the form of basically versified du'a. Sorry, this is a... I'll turn it down so you can hear in the background. So a lot of Sheikh Hamadou Bamba's poems, which you can hear here, are really versified uh, du'a, supplicatory prayers for blessings, for protection, for healing, for spiritual elevation, and the like. So this is one way in which praise poetry functions. Another way in which it functions is as a hilya, or a kind of icon. So a hilya is specifically a written description of the features and character traits of the prophet. And there's a tradition uh, quoted in Tirmidhi Shama'il, which says, for him who sees my hilya after my death, it is as if he has seen me himself, and he who sees it longing for me, for him God will make hellfire prohibited, and he will not be resurrected naked at doomsday. So these poems um, often function as a kind of hilya. They describe the prophet's features, even his physical features, his character attributes in exquisite detail and create a kind of tahil, a form of uh, imagination, imaginal image of the prophet and provoke an affect of longing towards that. 
um, which according to this hadith has salvific effect. And even the visual looking at these poems is understood to be similar to looking at a hilya. One of Sheikh Ibrahim Yassir's verses says, my writings are a joy to mankind. Whoever sees me or my writing will not be miserable even for a day. It's good for me since I work on his stuff. Um, I have not said this without permission. I've kept the secret not divulged by other than me. So I'll play you an example of one of these hilya type poems. And disciples sometimes recite these poems in order to have a, a dream of the Prophet. So that's one form of hilya. Now another way in which we can analyze or understand uh, praise poetry is as dhikr. The dhikr means remembrance, mention, invocation. And dhikr is generally understood to work, according to the authors in this uh, tradition, uh, by the presence of the invoked in the invocation. So the named is present in the name. By doing the dhikr of that, you actually bring the presence of, of the invoked uh, there. So the invoked is in the invocation, and the invocation, the dhikr, unites the invoker and the invoked. So by invoking, by and this uh, form of invocation that's closest to praise poetry is called salawat. It's invoking blessings upon the Prophet. Um, it's commanded in the Quran, uh, verily God and his angels invoke blessings on the Prophet. You believe invoke blessings upon him. Several hadiths say no one invokes blessing on me, but God invokes ten upon him. Sheikh Ramyas uh, said that the best form of dhikr uh, outside of the greatest name is invoke, uh, invoking blessings on the Prophet, and the best one invoking blessings upon the Prophet is the Salat al-Fati, which was discussed earlier. And so a lot of the um, ways in which praise poetry is understood, the work is very much the same as dhikr. It's invoking the spiritual reality of the Prophet, making it present, um, uniting the reciters and sometimes even the authors with that reality. Um, and several of these praise poems are basically versifications of salawat, of invocations of blessings uh, upon the Prophet. And I can't resist playing one. And they're often performed with dhikr of other formulas. So this poem, praising the Prophet, is interspersed with a call and response of la ilaha illallah, there's no God but God. So you have, sorry. We have both shahadas, both testimonies of faith. There's no God but God and then praise of Muhammad. And this is very common in the performance of the, these traditions. Okay, now getting a bit more uh, complicated. Praise as being. So madih, praise in general, can be understood actually as an echo of being itself. Um, so one author writes, the reality of praise according to the verifying Gnostics, the Arifun, is the act of making God's attributes of perfection manifest. This could either through be words or could be an act, which is God's praise for himself and the praise of all things for him. God's praise for himself is his existentiation of every living thing. So if you take the Quranic metaphor of everything that's existing as being God's speech, and all God's speech is good, so all God's speech is praise, and it's all praise of himself. So God's best speech is the, God's best praise of himself is the best of existence, which is the prophet himself. So in praising the prophet, then uh, the author says, so the halal essence, the prophet, is the utmost level of praise to which God praises himself, and that's why he's named Muhammad, the praised one. That's why he has the banner of praise. That's why he's called Ahmed. Um, 
So in praising, uh, God's best praise of himself is the prophet. Um, and so in imitating this divine act, this existentiating act of being, you also praise the prophet. So in some, you say imitation is the best form of flattery or praise. In this sense, praise is the best form of imitation, imitating the divine act that brings everything into existence. It's a bit complicated. You can ask questions about it later. Uh, finally, the, we have the, the poem as the praise poem as the embodiment of the insanal camel, uh, the maqam la maqam. Insanal camel is this uh, idea of the perfect human as a barzakh between God, the real, and creation, the many, one of the many, the absolute and the relative, contains everything within it. Within it. It's a logos-like first divine descent. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I could say more about it. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to say more in, in, in questions. But the insanal camel, the perfect human being, is understood to occupy the maqam la maqam. So every spiritual station, even if it's very high, is still limited by it being a particular station and not others. So certain Sufi theorists have said that the highest station is the station of no station, the station which transcends all stations and even transcends transcendence by being capable of taking on all of them. So it's kind of like Bruce Lee's Be Like Water, My Friend uh, speech. You pour the water into a cup, it becomes a cup. You put it in a bowl, it becomes a bowl. It transcends uh, everything. So one uh, Sufi described his experience of this. He said, then the bonds are loose, the contingent properties, the states, attributes, stations, configurations, acts, and beliefs. Uh, the one who has the station is not confined by any of them. By his essence, he flows in everything, just as wujud, being consciousness, flows in the realities of all things without end or beginning. And the prophet is the person who is understood as occupying this station par excellence. And this is one of the reasons why praise of him is so ineffable, ineffable because he is beyond any limitations, descriptions, is understood like this. But I should also mention this doctrine of insanal camel, or the Hakika Muhammadiyah, Muhammadan reality, isn't just a particular lofty metaphysical thing high up there. It's understood as being the very reality of every single person and actually every single thing. Uh, it's the inner reality of, of everything. I won't have time to read this poem that illustrates that. I won't have time to talk about the different sources. I have to jump to the conclusion. Sorry. Uh, no, I have, I have to get to the conclusion, unfortunately. I can email you the poem. Okay, so Madih poetry describes, embodies, evokes, and provokes uh, non-delimited human perfection in its wedded forms and meanings. It can function as dua, supplicatory prayer, hilia, kind of icon, dhikr, invocation, as uh, echo of the act of uh, wujud, of being itself, and as an embodiment of the insan al-kamal, or the hakika Muhammadiyah, Muhammadan reality. It mimics or echoes God's best praise for himself, which is the prophet, and embodies it in verse. It, has a, it works through the kind of magical poetry, which the prophet famously referred to as sihr halal, uh, licit magic. Um, it can work kind of like a lullaby to change or alter the state of consciousness. It captures, it's also understood particularly to capture the state of the poet. It's called lisan al-hal. The poet is in a particular hal or psycho-spiritual state at the time and captures it in verse, which then sets it free in the reciters and the, the listeners. It provokes desire and love for the beauty of humanity and its form, the formal beauty of the poetry is central to this efficacy. So I argue that this genre of literature invites us to look more carefully at the devotional dimensions of all literature and poetry and to attend more carefully to the literary and poetic dimensions of devotional ritual. Um, and it also has, I didn't get into this, this what I call hyper-intertextuality, which I think mirrors the extreme intersubjectivity of many of these Sufi traditions in which you achieve annihilation in your sheikh, in the prophet, in God. You're not just you. This poetry is also characterized by something um, which I call uh, Big Arabic, borrowing from J.F.O.'s characterizations of Shorinka's 
uh, Big English or Igilango Gesi. So JFO says in Igilango Gesi, it's using English in a language that, uh, uh, in a manner that surpasses the owners of the language themselves. When you use language in Igilango Gesi manner, you're transforming the English language, you're doing things with it and in it that the owners of the language themselves had not thought imaginable or that um, Shorinka's not just to wake up the napping English language for Englishmen and women, he wants to make the English language take the English language to areas of being that the owners of the language had not thought imaginable, or which is the same thing, had once thought imaginable, but irrevocably lost, and can now only recover if they have the humility, and the grace, and the self-interest to make themselves receptive to a fundamental aspect of world literary and intellectual history in the 20th century. So Arabic, um, the West African Arabic poetry is often characterized by difficult words, by elaborate syntactic structures, and things like that. And I argue that it's not just um, a kind of stilted formalism that they're using Arabic in an igilango gesi manner. They're using big Arabic to awaken possibilities of Arabic that have either been lost or forgotten in other contemporary uh, language traditions. And I'll finally close on this, sorry. Um, one of the dimensions I think that they're uh, uh, trying to resuscitate in, in the language, in the way they use language, is the idea of non the non-delimitation of the human state the unboundedness of the maqam la maqam, of the perfection of the prophetic station. Um, and William Chittick has a great quote that um, he says, science, technology, and all these branches of modern learning are grounded in ignorance of human nature. They falsify the human self by defining it in terms of ever more narrowly focused disciplines. And so these modern intellectual currents make people comfortable with the false notion that they belong to fixed stations, that they're one thing and not another. Once people lose sight of the non-delimitation of the true human state, they lose the possibility of thinking about perfection, let alone achieving it. Modern knowledge now tells us who we are not. It can never tell us who we are. Only a perspective rooted in the station of no station, as this literature is, can show us the way to this central point. Thank you. I uh, want to sincerely thank all five panelists for just a wonderful and um, enlightening panel. There's um, so much to talk about. I want to invite all of you, if you'd like to ask each other questions or comment or observations um, for the next few minutes, and then I'll open the floor up to um, comments and observations and questions from the audience. Anyone? Um, yeah, so. Can you use the mic? Sure. <clears throat> so I Hello. Uh, sorry, so I can't see the name tags over there. I know, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> but I the, uh, uh, yes, <laughs> the, the presentation on the evil eye in Egypt, um, I think would be an interesting um, conversation to, to put it in dialogue with Edward Lane's observations um, a couple of hundred years earlier and his sort of differentiation between various practices that are specific to certain socioeconomic classes. Um, and and do you would, would you see those sorts of things if you looked at um, Edward Lane's text, um, the, the kind of things that you're describing, um, and but but then also to be careful of this um, supposed heterodoxy of women's practices, um, that then that may represent a particular male gaze as it seems to in Edward Lane when he's talking about the women trying to get pregnant by dancing over the blood of a decapitated head outside of one of the gates in Cairo, right? So um, these are things that we imagine, maybe he didn't even see himself, but he's imagining what, what's happening. Um, and, and so that might be you know, interesting to sort of think about um, you know, practices. Can we locate them further, even if they're practitioners 
are not necessarily aware of the genealogies of these practices. Perhaps they are a bit earlier. Um, and we do have sources to take that conversation back a couple hundred years, at least maybe further. Um, yeah, so um, I did not use Lane, although I will take that um, suggestion under a serious consideration. This is a work in progress. Um, but in, in terms of um, the rest of the things that you said, uh, particularly, um, I, I talk about gender a little bit more in the paper. Um, and I, at least I always try to qualify these kinds of things. So, I mean, talking about um, quote unquote norm normative tradition, I mean, can you really say there's even such thing as that? Um, and there is a sense, at least that I got, that the people who do this don't really see it as being a women's practice. It's just something that they've had handed down to them over, you know, span of generations. They think of it, I, I would say, like the, I don't know, the same way that you might view, um, I don't know, a special recipe from your grandmother or something like that. It's 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 intertwined with the the part of your family inside the home. Um, yeah, not yeah. Women's cooking. Yeah. 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 Not women's cooking. I mean, and just because um, I just didn't see any men do it, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I would like to emphasize that and underline it. I'm only looking at a very small um, segment um, of society, really, um, when I'm when I'm talking about this, and um, I. I I talked to some other people um, from different uh, socioeconomic uh, statuses, um, particularly from a, uh, shall we say, more, more Western uh, educated um, and wealthy socioeconomic status. And yeah, she, she told me that essentially um, she viewed it as superstition, although she had known her grandmother to do it. Um, so there is a wide range of opinions Cultural and cultural internally. Thank you, um, Anyone else? Okay. I have a question. Oh, yes, go please. Okay, um, so I, this was a really rich panel, so I have a, I'm going to try to narrow narrow things down. So uh, for Professor Anderson, um, so you mentioned they recite Surah Noon, Noon Wal Qalam. Did they recite the second verse as well too? Because that's uh, very. Um, that says, and you're not by the grace of your Lord Majnun, mm -hmm. possessed by a, a jinn. So, oh, oh, sorry. Um, um, yesterday. Yeah. So they recite the second. So that that might be the. Um, so it's like, yes, the inscribing is is important, but it's also the the context of the revelation of that verse and the the negation of jinn possession. I think is also very operative oh, there. From Mr. Reagan. Oh, so okay. from Mr. Mr. Reagan. I'm Mr. sorry. Reagan. No, that's I fine. I got I got the names wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So the um, yeah. So from Mr. Reagan. Yeah. So that I think that's that's uh, also um, and another thing uh, a question I had was on the. The Rukia Shari tradition you identified as a kind of emerging in the 80s um, with uh, kind of uh, coalescing along with or being carried by a Salafi tradition. Mm -hmm. Have you compared this to uh, similar traditions of Rukia exorcism in Sufi tr uh, communities that are similar? What are the similarities, the divergences between these? I have, traditions? and uh, this is, so to give you an example of how complex it might yeah. be. Uh, in Morocco, while I was there, there was one exorcism that took place. Uh, the patient was a Senegalese woman who, is not, who did not identify as uh, any particular Sufi. 
and it was conducted by a Salafist who taught at a Quranic school in the home of a, uh, a Sufi sheikh of a Turkish order. Okay. The sheikh himself was uh, <laughs> North American. <laughs> so it's a complicated it's issue. Complicated, uh, it's a complicated way. But it does happen. There are differences, emphasis on uh, baraka and lineage tends mm -hmm. to be more prominent amongst uh, Sufi orders than it does amongst the uh, Salafist leaning uh, healers. But yeah, it's mixed. And the, the last question I had for you was this. Um, you gesture to the history of colonialism as something that's invoked and the Christian jinn being somehow involved, like the Christian jinn were brought with colonialism. I just wanted if you could say more about uh, the ways in which colonialism manifests in jinn possession. And so that actually has like two parts. Part is the history of biomedicine being a yeah. tool of the colonial state mm -hmm. uh, and creating individual body. And the second part is that the population of the jinn tend to reflect uh, the population of people yeah. as they go through history. Mm -hmm. So as in particular uh, French, in the case of the Moroccan, in, case of, in the Moroccan case, uh, colonized Morocco, the Christian jinn population increased mm -hmm. and was brought in. Thank you. So um, I would, um, thank you so much everyone. There's, there's, we could go on and I hope we will um, after the panel, but I wanted to open the floor. I'm really asking two things. One, could you please say your name first? when you ask a question or make a comment, and second, could you please keep your question or comment brief? Okay. Anyone like to comment or question? Ah, uh, yes. Well, I have, uh, what is your name? <laughs> Where are you from? No, <laughs> that's a long answer, right? If they are super um, uh, brief, and if they are a beige. Okay, so. Okay, okay. <laughs> oh, that was a fraternal, or, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, so for Paul, I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit more about um, the way the Egyptians you spoke to might categorize things themselves, especially thinking along socioeconomic lines. So it's in, it seems very striking to me that a more Western person would say, oh, this is superstition, and this falls yeah. under the realm of magic that almost isn't real and isn't appropriate, and then other people say, no, this isn't magic. In Yoruba, we have a word, Ogun, which could mean right. magic, technology, charm, medicine. medicine. Um, and so I wonder if instead of, it's difficult because you're speaking English, um, but you know, magic has this very complicated history of natural versus supernatural, religion versus superstition. Um, and so I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about the way, the way people would situate this, or the categories that people would use to describe them, and then how that may not map well onto European And then for um, Professor Gamete, um, I was wondering if you might also be able to, since we just had this great presentation on the thingness of the Quran, right, and the text, the ways you can actually do things with the word in material form as yeah. well, I was wondering if there's an element of that as well yep. with poetry. Yeah. And you did a great job, I think, of talking about how people can see the image of, uh, of the prophet or of the sheikh. Um, but I wonder also in the, cop uh, the act of copying yep. or transcribing the poetry, does that do things that yes. people actually use the text? Um, and how does that yes. work? Or just looking at the text, seeing it yep. as opposed to just... In medicine, too. Yeah, medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Deji. Okay, so Paul? Okay. Um, woo, uh, it's very complicated, to say the least. Um, well, one thing to mention is that Arabic has a lot of words for magic. 
and it is sometimes really hard to differentiate exactly what they mean, what they're referring to. So you can say like there's, there's seh, which is like mm. sort of overarching term, the simyeh. There's um, niranj. Um, yeah, there's there's so many different terms for it, and it's not entirely clear what they necessarily mean at a given time. So Ibn Khaldun, for example, will give his definition of simyeh, and hundred years later, someone will give some completely other definition of it. So it's hard to like really um, render it. So the term that I was using when I was talking with people, I was using sehr, um specifically. I asked them, is this sehr? Um I didn't use the other words because they're really not very commonly used in everyday discourse. Most people are like, what, what's that? They would understand shawadha. Uh, mm -hmm. for example, but that has the sense of like, I don't know, trickery, more or less. Yeah. Um, my, my friend from, the, uh, from a you know, Western-educated background, the word that she used for superstition is uh, khrafa, mm -hmm. um, or khuza'abala, which basically they mean nonsense, more or less. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, she did not refer to them as magic, though. No one I talked to referred to these things as magic. They were either uh, um, or I think only one person referred to it as Ruya. But yeah, these are generally the terms that were used. Very you know, neutral kinds of terms because at least I felt that there was, there was in this liminal space there's some kind of tension that exists because people have some kind of sense that these things could superficially resemble magic in some way or another. Um, and they insist very strongly that this is not the case. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Okay. All right, yeah, great question. Yeah, so these, po these poems are used, they're put in houses for uh, protection, copying them, looking at them as a devotional act. They're used a lot in healing, so famously, as Professor Khan mentioned last night, the Borda was composed and its composition is supposed to have healed its composer. Uh, when Haju Martal uh, was ill, he was gravely ill, he was afraid he was gonna die, he himself wrote a tashtir, which I wish I had had time to get into this. You take the two hemi-stitches of a verse and then you add eight other hemi-stitches with the same meter and rhyme scheme. Wow. So you, you make 10 out of two. Mm. So he did that of Fazazi's uh, Ishriniyat, which is a famous collection of 20 line poems. Um, so he wrote this monumental uh, uh, expansion of this work of praise poetry on, on the prophet. And when he was sick, he had his disciples recite it and it healed him. When they finished the recitation, it was so people recite it for protection uh, and keep it on them for protection in battle. Um, people, uh, when Almani uh, Bubakar Khan was forming the imamate uh, in, in, in Futa, uh, they had everyone swear their oaths of allegiance to him on the Quran, on Juzuli's Dalal Khairat, and a copy of Fazazi's Ishriniyat, this massive po praise poem. Uh, poem and praise of, of the prophet. So the, the materiality, um, even the material recitations, people will sometimes use it as a spiritual disinfectant. The Quran is used, you play it, and that kind of clears the air of, of, of things. And a lot of the homes of Shuyukh, 
you can tell, blindfolded, you can tell you're in a Tijani Sheikh's home, you'll smell a particular kind of bukhur, and you'll hear poetry being recited, uh, and you can tell it's a Nyasen Sheikh if it's recited in the Hausa style, and you can tell, uh, usually, so the, the, it, you have people whose entire jobs are to recite praise poetry. So the, the guy with the incredible voice in the orange outfit, uh, his, he makes a living reciting Sheikh Ibrahim Nyasa's poetry. That's what he does. Um, so you have people who are professional reciters of, of this poetry, and they can have careers doing this because of the um, multi-dimensional, multi-faceted ways in which this poetry works, uh, both physically, uh, psychologically, spiritually, on kind of all levels of reality. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, we have time for a few more questions. I actually would specifically like to invite women or people who identify as women to uh, to ask or to speak first, um, just so we can hear from. Yes, please. <laughs> and your name. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, my approach to this text was uh, primarily predicated on the task of the paper, which was really to look at the fadail, or the, the virtues of the different ahzab and uh, awrad. And so I kind of just went through his index and saw the places where the chapters where he talked about that primarily. There's like, I think, chapter 39 to like 43 or something like that. I just zoomed in on that, on that part. In terms of the uh, the extent of the re of the sources he uses, it's absolutely you know a lot of them, but in those particular parts, he's mainly seems to be relying on Jawahirani, and then uh, he's adding in things of his own, and he'll even often say, "I'm adding this in of my own, uh, mm -hmm. of my own accord," and will sometimes explain why he's doing that. You know, at one point he says. Uh, I'm adding this in to, because I think it might uh, inspire people. Uh, we're talking about all these rewards and so on. It will inspire people to, to keep through with it. Uh, so that was how I approached it. I didn't use the whole, the whole text. So really, I just had this little, little section where he's talking about the, the, the virtues of the different asset. Sounds like my mistake might have been starting at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, we have, yeah, just uh, oh, Professor. Thank you. Farah, do you want to offer any thoughts? No, no. Yeah, do you have anything else that you want to say about? No, maybe okay. just a little anecdote to keep in light. Uh, Please. There's a hashtag for Eva Lion now that people share their Instagram and Put their lives on display. Right. Uh, hashtag of same, mashallah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. 
Hashtag blessed, hashtag say mashallah. Okay, um, I think uh, this is, uh, it's now two o'clock and I'm going to um, do something I uh, almost two, uh, or a little bit after two, um, not known for, which is actually to keep uh, on time. Uh, and I uh, just want to, um, I'm sure our panelists would be delighted to speak during the break to, uh, there's so much here um, that, uh, that we could continue for so long. I, uh, Really, it's a, it was a wonderful panel, wonderful panel to listen to. I had many questions of my own. I want to thank all of you for um, bringing your experience and your, um, your analysis to us. I want to thank you for your questions. And again, thanks to Professor Khan for this wonderful conference. Thank you. Thank you.